Hello, my name is Dr. Rosemary Morgan, and I am an associate scientist at Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. Femtech to me is leveling the playing field by ensuring health products and technology that works for women is designed, developed, and implemented. Welcome to Femtech Focus with Dr. Brittany Barreto, exploring the past, present, and future of women's health and wellness. Focus podcast where we have meaningful and provocative conversations with femtech experts. These academics, doctors, and innovators tell us about the past, present, and future of women's health and wellness. I'm your host, Dr. Brittany Barreto. In today's episode, I interview Dr. Rosemary Morgan. Dr. Morgan is an associate scientist at Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health in the Department of International Health. Dr. Morgan has experience in gender, gender analysis, and intersectionality within health and health systems. I first heard Dr. Morgan on my morning news podcast called What A Day by Crooked Media, check it out. They had her on to speak about the differences in vaccine side effects in males and females. I knew we had to have her on the show. We reached out and she said, sure, yeah, have me on. So we uh, had a really, really fun interview. We discussed differences between gender and sex how gender bias is embedded in the healthcare system, vaccine side effects that disproportionately and differently affect females, and COVID-19 vaccines specifically. So super relevant for today. Enjoy the episode. Hey, Rosemary, welcome to the show. Hi, Brittany. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. I actually heard you speaking on another podcast and made my whole team listen to it in terms of your insight on the differences between women and men and uh, COVID-19 vaccine. And so I made my team listen to it and I was like, I would love to have her on the show. And I have the best team ever. And they reached out to you and got you. So here we are. Well, thanks. I'm glad you did. Yes, absolutely. Well, let's kick off the interview with talking about your background. So our listeners love to hear about our guests, you know, where are they from? What did they study? Have they always been interested in women's health? Um, If not, what did you do before? And how did you end up here? What do you do now? Sure. Yeah, I wasn't sure how far you wanted me to go back. But uh, so I'm actually from Canada originally. And I from near Vancouver, from a town called Squamish, uh, a small town about an hour north of Vancouver. And I have kind of a funny path, I suppose, to getting to where I am now. And my undergrad, I went to the University of British Columbia in Vancouver, and I studied uh, theater, technical theater. And uh, then I decided that wasn't really what I wanted to pursue. I finished the, the degree, but I got so went into sociology and was very interested in equity and, and, and just in equity in general. And from there, I actually moved to the United Kingdom. I went to the University of Edinburgh, where I studied policy, policy studies and got very interested in health, health policy, particularly from a global perspective. So that led to a PhD at the University of Leeds. Uh, specifically looking at uh, HIV policy uh, within in Tanzania. 
and uh, a, a couple of years after graduating, I you know I taught in the UK at the University of Leeds. I actually went back to the University of Edinburgh. Very strong interest in sexual reproductive health, maternal health, um, and then I came to Johns Hopkins to work on a project that specifically looked at integrating gender, gender analysis into health systems research. And I'd been doing a lot of health systems uh, research previously. And from there, my passion for gender really grew gender analysis. You know, uh, uh, women's health is part of that, but also interested in, you know, men's health and gender minority health. Mm -hmm. uh, and just how, how does gender as a social determinant affect health, like everyone's health? Yes, absolutely. It sounds like you were interested in sociology, right? And then you were like, okay, how about equality within sociology? Oh my gosh, health inequalities amongst mm -hmm. it, right? It kind of like, it sounds like it all built on each other, right? It yeah, it, it did for sure. You know, I was always interested in where is the most, where are the biggest inequities and where can we address them? And I think that's sort of where my path went. And you think that there's such inequalities in health that it kind of like stood out to you, right? It did. I mean, particularly from a global health perspective. So the inequities in health between high and middle, low and middle income countries really stood out, particularly women's health, maternal health. It's still high yeah. to this day. Uh, I think if we're looking in, in high income countries like the United States and Canada, gender inequities and racial inequity and the intersection of the two is still huge. You know, it's one of the, I think the biggest gaps in health. Oh my goodness. So you study sex and gender analysis first. Can you tell our listeners um, what do you define as sex and what do you define as gender? And then, you know, what does it mean to analyze it? Sure. Um, make sure I get the, the definition of, of, sex right but sex and gender are definitely different um, and they're often conflated to be the same thing which is uh, incorrect um, sex has more to do with our biology our chromosomes you know what we're what we're born with at birth just some in lay mm -hmm. terms and whereas gender is socially constructed so it's what has given society considers appropriate for a man and a woman in terms of the attributes, attitudes, behaviors, you know, and then what, how does that then shape opportunities, for example, and chances? And what happens when you don't fit within that given structure of what's socially acceptable? And then sex and gender very much do intersect. So gen, you know, different socially constructed notions of gender, behavior, attitudes, do impact our biology, right? Mm -hmm. uh, so I think it's they're very hard to disentangle sometimes, but mm -hmm. they are different. And what implications do they have in health? I mean, I think it's obvious the sex part. So females, they literally the chromosomes are different, right? You have two X chromosomes instead of an X and Y. But we've also talked a lot on the show about metabolism being different. You know, mm -hmm. men's metabolism is thirty percent faster than women. So oftentimes, women are the ones that are cold in the workplace. Like literally, like on a biological level, there's differences. But what about gender? How does gender affect your health? Mm. Yeah, that's a that's a great question. Um, I think there, you know, with as you're right, there's like some of the sex differences are really clear to see. I mean, one of the the simple ones is around maternal health too. You know, the the type of health that women need as a result of their uh, biology. Mm -hmm. um, gender, on the other hand, I think it 
it try to find a, the right way to say it. It uh, it affects and shapes our health by the ways in which gender inequities manifest. Yes. So they manifest as potentially inequitable access to resources, and that might be income, education, knowledge, time. Uh, time is a resource, um, inequitable division of labor and roles and practices. So what who does what type of work and what are the risks of that work? Uh, the fact that women do more care work in the home and, and might lead to different levels of stress. Um, it manifests the different values and beliefs of what's appropriate and then what happens when you don't. And, you know, values, one example with, with with men is particularly this idea of um, masculinity is about needing to be healthy and strong. It leads to delayed healthcare seeking, which has, you know, a, a direct effect. Whereas women's um, women's actually roles and care care roles actually puts them in interaction with the health system a lot more. It's actually a bit more pro protective in that sense. But then, but then we also have decision making and autonomy, and especially in some contexts, women might lack dis more decision making and autonomy around not only how to use financial household resources, but how to uh, whether they can go to the doctor at all, whether they can leave the house, um, and all of this this factors into health. One of the big examples as well is around behavior. Again, what's socially acceptable around, um, like we see among men, things around drinking and smoking, which is connected to non-communicable diseases like cancers. Um, but however, as societies shift and particularly as societies become more gender equitable in terms of you know, opportunities, education, jobs, we see more women taking on these traditionally masculine roles, like our behaviors, like smoking, maybe more drinking. So we are seeing that that there's that shift um, in relation to health. I always think it's interesting talking about gender and um, like drugs or addiction because mm -hmm. Alcoholics Anonymous, the book is written in a male perspective. Like there's literally a chapter in the AA big book called uh, to the wives. Like if your husband's an alcoholic, this chapter's for you because like women are an alcoholic, obviously. And that book was written in 1930s. It's like not even a hundred years ago. Right. And the whole book is like only men are alcoholics, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that's now it, I think there's actually, I don't know the statistics, but I think there's might be like, uh, the growth in women joining 12 step programs is faster than men. Oh, sure. I'm not, yeah. I'm not surprised by that. Yeah. You're like, um, yeah, no, I would, <laughs> I especially during COVID, right. Uh, yes. we're not a cupcake, um, of it, the, but you've had, you've actually touched upon another key sort of gender ways in which gender affects our health. And that's uh -huh. more how gender bias is embedded in our systems and structures. And like the health system is one of them research, clinical research is another. So, you know, what gets studied, what questions get asked, what's assumed, like who, like the example that you gave, the fact that it's a, it was assumed that more men are alcoholics. And then, but the ways in which women drink might be very different from what men drink, the ways in which men drink. And perhaps the, we need different strategies, right? But because we don't have, we haven't studied it or looked at it, this is a big gap. Absolutely. And what, it, what gets funded and what doesn't. Um, yeah, I was yeah. actually just talking to a woman the other day. She was on this like design team for like this heart monitor and uh, this team of engineers brought out the prototype and she was like, um, that looks like a maxi pad. And they were like, what, what are you talking about? And she was like, let me show you. It like took out a maxi pad. She was like, 
Nate, nobody gonna want to wear this on their chest. It looked, and they were like, uh oh, <laughs> like millions of dollars from mm-hmm. Oma's making a medical version of maxi pad. So yeah, we need women in the room, right? We need <laughs> us in the room. Um, sure. Uh, do you see us like starting to, um, you know, is it really, really rare for us to start to integrate sex and gender into our research and our analysis of health? Or is it like a trendy thing right now? Like, where do you see us on the spectrum? Are we starting to gain some momentum? Or are we still like, it? you know, don't hold your breath? Sure. I, you know, I really think we have seen change, uh, particularly in the last year, you know, in relation to COVID-19. Mm-hmm. I think COVID-19 has brought attention to sex and gender that we like we've never seen it before. You know, uh, we see so much more in the news, in the media, and yes, it's in relation to COVID-19, but the hope is it will broaden out, branch out to other topics. Uh, we have seen an increase in attention, especially over the last 10, 20 30 years maybe right and it it's there's still a lot of gaps like funders uh, such as the National Institute for Health in the United States or the Canadian Institute for Health Research they've played a big role in requiring those that are submitting proposals you know for clinical research and other types of research to factor in a sex and gender analysis Canada's really led led this by providing a lot of get guidance on what that means However, still a lot of people aren't doing it or, or they're treating it like a tick box exercise or they're equating gender with women's health. But, you know, if I'm looking at women's health, I'm doing gender work, which is not it's not true. Right. Um, it's just you can do gender in relation to women's men's or gender minority health. And you can also be quite gender biased if you're looking at just women or just men. So, we, you know, we've seen this shift in funders. We're still seeing you know, a big example of COVID when the, the COVID-19 vaccine trials, yes, women were included, which is great because women were have been historically excluded from clinical trials. And it wasn't until the 1990s that they were included, which is like, I remember the 90s. That's just ridiculous. Um, <laughs> yeah. And the even with the but the clinical trials, yes, they included women and like they looked at outcomes by, by sex but with, with the adverse reactions, they didn't look, they didn't disaggregate the data, that particular outcome or d- just data by sex. So uh, we had this data that was aggregate, meaning everyone was lumped in together. And then not only did they not disaggregate the data by sex, they didn't ask sex specific questions. So here's this like gender bias of, we, it's already, you know, there's this big gap. So if you're not asking women, oh, did you have any, uh, were there any side effects that maybe only pertain to your female body, like your menstrual cycle or, you know, um, you know, other, other things that might be, which we're seeing anecdotally people's talking about now. So there's these huge gaps. Uh, We have seen a shift. There's more attention, but we still have a long way to go. I, as a scientist, I just don't understand how they didn't tease that apart and study it because Um, you know, we at Femtech Focus, we do a lot of research. So we research the industry in general, and I will sit for hours on Google Sheets, teasing apart this, or what if I, you know, structure, uh, you know, we have a database of about 620 Femtech companies, and I love to tease it apart. Who's working on menstruation? Okay, if you're on, if you're in menstruation, how many are US-based versus European-based? And, you know, and I just tease apart, tease apart, because you don't know what you're going to discover. So, like when you say like, oh, nobody, every, they just summed it up. They said, here's the column of adverse effects. Let's just like equal sum, <laughs> add it all together. 
publish it like is it a was it a you think it was baby because they were like rushed or like that it literally is just like not part of the protocols that people like it's not standard for people to think about teasing it apart yeah I don't think it was because it was rushed uh obviously they have that data (laughs) I mean they know who's man who's a man and who's a woman I mean we even saw that with early days of the COVID-19 pandemic when the data was coming in there's a great tracker called global global health 5050 as this whole sex desegregated tracker for oh. COVID-19 it's great for data uh, but and they've been looking you know tracking it from the early days and which countries have the data and which don't and one of the things that we found is countries were some of the countries like were reporting on differences in the beginning but then once it got to a certain number of cases they just sort of stopped but mm-hmm. obviously we know people's sex and gender and I, I just think it's this inherent bias that's in the system it's all that this this virus this with with pandemics it's a little different because we've got this the phrase is the tyranny of the urgent which is something Mm -hmm. my colleague dr julia smith that's i'm fraser university is used in her in at work um that we're when we're dealing with like really urgent issues we sometimes sideline some of these other issues that we think are less important but clearly are really important um, but I think it's just this inherent ingrained bias and it goes all the way back years when, you know, before the 1990s, when clinical research, medical research only included men because they were worried that one, well, if women were pregnant, there might be harm to their fe- fetuses or maybe their biology, their hormones might change things. So everything was, if it worked for the male body, it worked for everybody. That was sort of the assumption. And I think mm-hmm. we've just got this inherent bias that's just ingrained that people aren't really thinking of these differences. Um, yeah, and you know, the, this is a little bit, one of the things, I haven't totally fleshed out this idea, but you know, in the 90s, 2000s as well, this idea around like women's equality, women can, is the same. And I see, I don't know if you see on some discussion boards online, I, I, I like to read some of the comments. I don't go too deep, but people are like, well, I thought women were supposed to be equal to men. Right. I thought like, and I'm just thinking it's not about equality, it's about equity. Right. Yeah. And I don't know if we've had this, there's this, there was this shift around what equality and people not understanding what equality versus equity and that we are different. Our biology is different. The, so the norms and social norms and activities that we do is different. It doesn't mean one is better than the other. It just means that we have to factor this in and incorporate it. Yep. Absolutely. A hundred percent. Um, <laughs> you know, it's, it's really insane. Um, I think we are in an era of uh, talking about equality and disparities and equity and like, what is, it's not one size fits all. And therefore everyone gets one thing. It's that like, we need to consider that women are not just little men or that black people have different experiences in the world than white people like, or gender being, uh, you know, constructed by society. So, mm-hmm. um, well, Rosemary, um, did women and men have experienced COVID-19 infection differently? Like did one gender get infected more? Were the symptoms worse in one gender than the other? Yeah, uh, that's a, it's a good question. And again, if you look at the aggregate level again, so if you look at all the data together, we are we see a pretty similar pattern or rates of infection among men and women. However, we have disaggregating the data in different ways is really important. So if you look at specific countries, you will see different changes. 
So I'm looking at the global level, yes, we saw similar rates of infection, but in some countries we saw higher infection rates in men and others higher infection rates in women. We don't always know why, um, uh, always, you know, in some cases as well around thinking about mortality, we saw higher, you know, for most, most of the data should, so, should suggest that more men have been dying or, you know, get severe work outcome, more severe outcomes from COVID and die, we're dying because of COVID. But in some countries we see a flip. And some of that, like Canada is an interesting example because of the number of deaths in care homes and the fact that women live longer than men and there were more women in care homes that really drove the data. I mean, I think also data gaps, like where if there's gaps in the data, um, going back to infection, one of the interesting things to consider is profession. And if you think about healthcare workers, so yes, uh, of all healthcare workers, around 75 to 80% of all healthcare workers are women. Wow. But, so you would expect more infection rates among them, but we st- we saw a disproportionate rate of infection among women healthcare workers compared to men. So, you know, even though you might see some the data on the whole suggests that we have equal rates of infection, if you actually unpack by you know different demographics, different characteristics, you see different things. And the same same thing with mortality. I mean, mortality on the whole, yes, more men are dying, but in some contexts, the story is a little bit different. Yes. Oh, that's really interesting. You brought up like women living longer, being in nursing homes. I'm like, oh yeah, that's that could affect the data. And you got to think about those other like touch points and details when you can't, you know, uh, correlation is not causation, right? Exactly. So. Um, <laughs> Like we're, we believe in science on this show, obviously. (laughs) Um, Okay. So we talked about the virus. What about the vaccine? So luckily women were included in those trials. Thank goodness. Um, But we're seeing that there were some adverse uh, reactions and, you know, I've been running Femtech Focus for about, you know, almost two years, year and a half. And I've learned a lot about femtech and women's health and the disparities yet every single day, I feel like I still learn. And so when they first took the Johnson and Johnson thing off the market, the vaccine off the market because of adverse effects, I started to hear a bunch of people say, yeah, well, you know, women are mostly the ones who have adverse effects anyways from vaccines. And I started to dig into this and I was like, oh my gosh. So Mm Could you um, tell us about some of the adverse effects that women experience more often than men do? Sure. So it, I mean, I've mentioned this before, it's important, you know, to recognize that our biology, men and women's biology is different. So we, women do respond to vaccines differently. And it's because women tend to exhibit a greater immune response um, Mm -hmm. to vaccines, which actually uh, make tend to make vaccines work better in women, um, and this is you know due to how our hormones or estrogens you know make up the functioning of our immune system. Also, like interesting, I'm sure you know this fact, but the reason that 80% of all autoimmune diseases afflict women is because of women's more robust immune system. Mm-hmm. Um, side effects, like often a lot of the side effects that are counted and captured are minor, very mild. And they're also often very short-lived. And I've done a lot of, uh, I I work a lot on influenza. So looking at sex and gender differences in influenza, particularly the influenza vaccine, and we saw the same thing. Women reporting greater uh, degree of side effects. Again, most of these are quite mild. Soreness, swelling, redness, those are local, localized side effects. Um, the more systemic side effects are considered are considered things like flu-like illness, headache, sore throat, 
you know, and again, both things men and women experience, it's just that women tend to report more. Of course, you have to think about, is there a reporting bias? Like, I'm always thinking about gender and gender norms and are women more likely to report? Like, maybe, like, that's just something you need to consider. Uh, we have seen, and you're right, with COVID-19, but this is anecdotal because, again, the original vaccine trials did not disaggregate the adverse reaction data by sex, um, is the more sex-specific side effects. So women reporting changes to their menstrual cycle, it being coming earlier or later, being heavier or more painful. Um, and I think there's like a more than enough women have been saying this, that researchers are picking it up and now studying it. And other side effects around women reporting enlarged lymph nodes in the breast area. So when they went to see a mammogram, it affected the results. Um, and of course, this led to questions around fertility. Is there an effect on fertility? Which we don't have the, the answers. The most things that I've read is like, no, we don't. Yeah. But again, people aren't really asking the questions. But the thing that's important to know is it's similar to what we're seeing with COVID is not different from other vaccines like influenza, like other types of vaccines. Women do report greater adverse events or side effects, which are mostly mild than men. And it does have a lot to do with biology with our more robust immune systems. Have you ever heard of a vaccine affecting a woman's menstrual cycle before? No, but probably because no one ever asked. (laughs) Yeah, it probably has been affecting our menstrual cycles forever, but it's never been a a shot that everyone in the world is getting. And so therefore we're like talking about every change that might happen, right? Exactly. I mean, but you said that correlation is not causation. And that is really important to think about with vaccines because so many things are happening in our lives at any given moment. And women's menstrual cycles change all the time. We all know that if we've had the women or uh, female people with female reproductive organs who had menstrual cycles uh, know that this it changes pretty you know you live in a dorm menstrual cycle psychs sync up right which is weird and so just because we don't we need more data we need more research because if a woman says oh my menstrual cycle changed they're like okay but we know there's lots of other factors that might be at play there so we, we really need the research but again people need to ask those questions they need I, when I, with a gender lens, the way I refer to it, and this is like speaking to the researchers, when you want to bring in a gender lens to your work, yes, sex disaggregated data is important. Yes, well, intersectional sex disaggregated data is important. So looking at uh, among group differences, like maybe black women versus white women might experience things differently, you know, different ages, looking at those intersections. But you can bring in a gender lens to a sex-specific study. So a sex-specific study is just among women, right? Or just among men, as opposed to a sex-desegregated study, which includes both women and men. But if we're bringing in the sex, the gender lens, we have to make sure we're asking the right questions, right? Questions that might only pertain to women, might only pertain to men. And if we're not bringing that lens in right from the very beginning, we're gonna miss really important things. And this this idea around the menstrual cycle and changes to vaccines is one of a really perfect example of that. 100%. And so do you have like a quick takeaway suggestion for those listening? Like, do they need to bring somebody in you, like you in and like to help them make up the questions or like, what is the best strategy we do? I know we have a lot of researchers that listen as well. And so what, how did they get started to being, you know, gender and sex woke in their research? Yeah, the, well, 
bringing in someone with gender expertise expertise or looking at sex as a biological variable or, or gender or both, like they're different perspectives is important. So there's this argument and we've seen it, we have got years of data, right? Where gender mainstreaming is this idea where we're integrating gender into and gender lens into everything. But we know that it doesn't work per se because everyone thinks it's somebody else's responsibility and it gets passed around. Whereas just having gender as a side alone, its own thing doesn't work either because it doesn't get mainstream. So it's like, you need a combination of the both, but then you need, so you need that gender expertise to look at where we can integrate it and mainstream it because it's so important for every part of the, the stage and for people to ask those questions that we might, might not be thinking about. And there are like really, there are tools that we can use to systemic, systematically apply a gender lens um, to, to the work that we're doing and just to ask the right questions. Like how are men and women being affected differently? How are men and women of different groups, different racial, ethnic, minority groups, age groups being affected differently? And it's like kind of bringing a different perspective to the work we're doing right from the very beginning. Yeah, I feel like I often hear about differences in like adult women and men in terms of like side effects or did they study them or not? Did they consider gender or not? Like, do you know about any case studies that have to do with children and gender and like sex and then teasing it apart? Like, I haven't heard of any, so I'm just asking you. Oh, at the top of my head, no. I mean, I'm sure I could have a look in the literature. We might be able to find something. We have a review that was published quite recently that we looked at different age and sex, but I don't remember a lot on adolescence in there. Oh, exactly. Uh, That's what I'm thinking. Yeah. yeah. But, and- the one in, the interesting thing um, is think like with vaccines and thinking about dosages, right? That kids uh, get a different dose than adults. Um, I don't know what the COVID nineteen guidance is among that. I know younger kids are getting the vaccine now, but the interesting thing is if we're, kids are getting different dosages, whether that does that have an effect, I don't know. They're getting less. Some, I was talking to someone once who was like, she says, I must, I didn't, we were online, so I didn't see what she looked like. Well, I saw her, but I didn't, I didn't know her body or how tall or anything. She's like, I'm a very slender, slim woman. So when I was bringing my kids in to get vaccines, I asked for that vaccine because my body size is similar, right? Because they're thinking about the dosages, which got me thinking, it's like, why are we having that perspective with children? but not perspective with adults thinking about, oh, women have different body types. Maybe we need different dosages. Yeah. Apparently if you're a child at 120 pounds, you know, like maybe you're an adolescent high school boys in football, but if you're a grown woman who's 90 pounds, just because you're petite, you know, like, but no, you're an adult, you're over 18. So you get the over 18 dosage, right? Yeah. It's yeah I'm you raise an interesting question around children I I don't know the answer to that I think we'd have to go back and look and I would I would I'm I'm sure there's some people looking at that I would I you know but the question I'm like thinking about it from the gender lens dosing question totally I have one last question about the COVID-19 um side effects and you know research um you know they didn't include pregnant women in the uh clinical trials for the vaccine. And so I know when I was hearing them say on the radio, like, go get your vaccine, like group one can go get it. If you're pregnant or breastfeeding, talk to your doctor. 
And so I did a little Instagram story and was like, okay, physicians, like what did the CDC tell you that they didn't tell everybody else about pregnant women and breastfeeding? And, you know, physicians were replying like, oh no, we don't have any secret information. They're just giving us the responsibility to decide. Like they didn't tell us anything else. Um, and so, okay, so th- let's put a pin in that. So that's kind of a messed up system, right? Like, oh, you know, primary care physicians, you can figure this part out. But, you know, there's people said, you know, women are unknowingly pregnant getting the vaccine in the clinical trial, after the clinical trial. So eventually we're going to find out how the vaccine affects, you know, the fetus and the baby. And so it really got me thinking about including pregnant women um, in clinical trials because sure there's like, and I'm not just even talking about vaccines in general, but all drugs there is a certain amount of like, you don't want to risk the health of the fetus or the baby, but it's going to happen anyways in the real world. Right. Like, and so we might as well monitor it rather than like, let it happen in the real world. What is your take on that? Should pregnant women be in clinical trials? Yeah. From an equity perspective and like thinking about the sex and gender lens and the fact that pregnant women tend to be some of the most vulnerable groups group, you know, for different, different reasons. Yes, they should be, I think, but it should be very much based on it, like informed consent, like what, what it is, but we should be allowing women to make that choice for themselves. We have this historical knowledge and perspective of pregnant women and vaccines. Now um, we see similar patterns with, uh, with Ebola and the Ebola vaccine and like pregnant women actually being really, they weren't, they weren't able to get it and they were very vulnerable and you know, and uh, pregnant women that were getting getting COVID, what was the vulnerability there? So I actually think it's from an equity issue. Yes, it's very important that women, pregnant women are included in clinical trials, uh, but from very much from an informed consent perspective, like you said, highly monitored. It's mm-hmm. not like we're going in blind, like we have it, we don't know the ways in which vaccines work yeah. on bodies. Like they, they might be a little bit different, but look at all the vaccines that we have. I mean, I'm not a biologist. I'm not an immunologist. I mean, I'm saying that based on my own, like my own, um, but from an equity standpoint, from a gender lens, I think it's unethical not to include pregnant women in clinical trials. Yeah. hundred yeah, percent. Cool. Well, cause that's what I've been thinking. I've been settling on that in my mind. Um, cause for me, it's the, it, it's going to happen anyways. Let's at least monitor it so we can record it and we can report it and learn. Right. So so interesting. Well, Rosemary, this has been awesome. Um, I definitely would love to have a glass of wine with you and just think about all the ways gender and sex <laughs> affect um, healthcare and research. And it's literally my favorite topic. Um, we have two last questions that our listeners really like. The first one is we have a lot of aspiring founders, a lot of university and grad students. So if someone wanted to start a femtech, like women's health and wellness innovation company, what's an area that you think still needs innovating? Sure. Well, I can think of two examples, particularly related to COVID-19 that kind of emerge um, as, as issues. Not they won't cause by COVID-19 that, you know, just COVID-19 exposed different inequities that are, were already there. One is the need for personal protective equipment that adequately fits women's bodies um, to, to keep them safe, you know, and the other one is around thinking about the need for sex specific dosing around vaccines or medications. So thinking about like in regards to personal protective equipment, 
I've already mentioned how women healthcare workers were disproportionately impacted. And again, some of this evidence is anecdotal, but it was more women reporting that they were failing their fit tests from, from the mask, right? The, the just weren't fitting their bodies. So a lot of the personal protective equipment out there is designed for the male body. We see that in construction work. We see that in the police force. We see women having to alter their bodies or having to take things off or not being able to be as efficient because of what they're wearing, but it has huge harmful effects. So we really need personal protective equipment that's designed for different shapes and sizes, particularly related to the woman's body. Um, in relation to the, the sex-specific dosing, we, we know that vaccines, women and men interact with men's and women's body differently. We, we know that medication does, right? There's um, examples of Ambien is such a big example that's always used of how women should actually be getting half the dose, five milligrams and not 10. And we know that because there was a link between car accidents and women who took Ambien the night before, right? And then we also, there's not as much research on vaccines, but there's at least one study I know of that found that women receiving half dose of the influenza vaccine had the same results as men receiving the full dose. And, be, you know, because women have a stronger immunal response what does that mean in terms of the adverse reactions and then to me does that link to vaccine hesitancy and you know and then prevent also prevent women from going to get the vaccine um and yeah these these are questions that i have that we need to make sure that our you know our vaccines or medications that we have sex specific dosing and, and you know um, allocations for them and a lot of people just aren't asking these questions yeah, sex specific and um and potentially even just weight, you know, specific mm -hmm. as well. Like you're talking yeah, yeah. about, right? Because even women, like <laughs> again, you know, I always joke around, like, oh, we're not just little men. And sometimes I think to myself, well, sometimes we're bigger than men. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, true, true. Like women are all different sizes, and uh, mm -hmm. um, it's so interesting. I did not know about the PPE, the personal protective equipment, and it, you know, not being uh, you know, fitted for women necessarily. We had a product designer on the show who talked about um, surgical tools are made for the man's hand and ergonomically a man's hand and a woman's hand, there's not much overlap actually. And so, um, and that scrubs are too long uh, generally. <laughs> and so right. Filipina uh, nurses are like the number one uh, gender and ethnicity of nurses and their scrubs are rolling around on the floor of hospitals it's like a public health issue actually you know oh, yeah. um, and so I didn't even know about the masks but that makes a lot of sense mm -hmm. hmm. um and then what do you think the femtech the women's health and wellness industry as a whole needs the most right now in order to be successful mm, yeah well do you know what I think we need more diverse voices so more like support for women, but also particularly minority women entrepreneurs, you know, people that are thinking about these problems in different ways, having diverse teams, right, is so important with these different perspectives. You know, there's actual, I'm sure you know this, but research has shown that women entrepreneurs are actually more successful in terms of revenue, but like we don't, but then, but male entrepreneurs are the ones getting the money and we know women entrepreneurs are more likely to design products and things that work for women. But again, like we need that intersectional perspective, making sure we have diverse groups of women, diverse voices, 
Um, the other thing I think is more research and advocacy in the in the need for like sex and gender integration. So whether that's like specific research, um, thinking about like the what products, what technologies really work with what, for women, which is what femtech is doing, right? But I think like we just need some this advocacy angle is so is so important. Yeah, hundred percent. Well. Um, thank you for all the research you do because it adds to what we're doing. And, uh, you know, we just want to make sure that women are well and feeling well and living well. And that can't happen when our masks are made for a man's face and not ours, right? <laughs> it can't necessarily happen when, uh, we're not considered in trial. So thanks so much for the research you do and taking the time to chat with us today. Well, thanks so much for having me. Thank you for listening to my interview with Dr. Rosemary Morgan, Associate Scientist at Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health and a Department of International Health. I want to know, have you been vaccinated? Did you have any side effects? What do you think about our system defaulting to male physiology and how can we address this disparity? I found this conversation so interesting and I dare say I am grateful to COVID-19 for bringing these conversations to the forefront. I personally am vaccinated, double vaxxed, fully vaxxed. Um, only side effect I had luckily was uh, a rash on my arm. Thank goodness. But I want to hear about yours. What happened to you? Messaged us. Go on social media at Femtech Focus or reach out to me personally at Dr. Brittany Barreto. Um, let's have a conversation about it. Alrighty, Fem fans, please be sure to join our virtual community, subscribe to our newsletter, and become a Fem Pro member for $10 a month. You can get access to all of our pre-recorded videos and webinars and workshops, including our summit that was amazing in March. While on our website, femtechfocus.org, you can also set up a recurring donation. We are a 501c3 nonprofit and rely on your donations to operate. Until next time, keep innovating because improving women's health and wellness improves everyone's health and wellness.